I'm Pete Vernon, and this is The Kicker, CJR's podcast about all things media. On today's show, my colleague Meg Dalton has a great conversation with Anne Helen Peterson. Anne is a senior culture writer at BuzzFeed and also contributed a great piece to CJR's most recent magazine issue on threats against the press. For BuzzFeed, she tackles stories about pop culture, celebrity, feminism, and everything in between. And her most recent piece was about a new wave of Native American writers. As a reader, it made me think a lot about what stories need to be told and also who gets to do the telling. And Meg tackles those questions and more in her conversation with Anne. After that, we'll dive into some of the week's biggest media stories with some of my favorite colleagues. But first, here's Meg's conversation with Anne. So you've written some of my favorite pieces over the last year, and I was especially struck by your most recent piece for BuzzFeed about the emerging generation of Native American writers. I'm curious, what made you want to tell this story? Well, this is a an interesting question because I, you know, as I talk about in other writing, like my goal with writing about Native issues is to make them so prominent that like we can, at a place like BuzzFeed, a national outlet like BuzzFeed, can, you know, hire an Indigenous writer who can then decide what is important instead of a white person deciding what's important or a non-Indigenous person deciding what's important. Um, But I grew up in Northern Idaho and the only diversity near me, like the only difference of like from whiteness um, that I was familiar with was from the Nez Perce Reservation, which was just a a mile away from where I lived. And so I think that um, that doesn't necessarily, living near a reservation does not make someone appreciative necessarily of indigenous people or respectful of indigenous people. Like some of the most racist places towards natives in America are towns right on the borders. Um, in part because they are confronted with Native issues on such a a more quotidian basis. But it did, um, like, when I moved back here to to Montana to cover the Mountain West, you know, part of covering the Mountain West is covering Native issues. And so that was in my mind, and I'm I'm always looking for stories and, like, a way in to talk more about the issues facing Native communities. Um, And this, this was a way, I thought, to, instead of focusing some on some of the um, more tragic and frustrating uh, stories that absolutely need to be told and get told pretty often about reservation life. Um, this was a, a really different sort of story and a, a wonderful story. And then also I had you know, just, I read the book, like I read Hartberry's Teresa's book and I loved it and it felt so different and new. And, you know, that, that, so that was a bonus in and of itself. And, and then through talking to her and then deciding, okay, we're going to profile the school where she got her MFA and where she is now teaching, which is an indigenous centered MFA program. That's how we then decided, oh, well, and then Tommy Orange has a book coming out as well. They sold their books within two weeks of each other. You know, this was a, a narrative that was really compelling and interesting that wasn't just a profile of an author, but of a whole wave of Native American literature. So you just mentioned the the story's two kind of main characters, Therese Mallet and Tommy Orange. How did you go about meeting them? And why did you think they were the best vehicle for this conversation? 
So I like a lot of journalists, I get pitches all the time and like 99% of them I ignore because they're about like, I don't know, some like party item that you're supposed to use for St. Patrick's Day, you know, like that sort of stuff that just gets bulk mailed into my inbox. (laughs) And I use Google, like this is wonky, but I think it's, you know, if journalists are listening to this, it's the sort of thing that we we think about. Uh, I use Priority Inbox. So a lot of that stuff just becomes this like flood of my unpriority inbox that I don't even see it sometimes. And for better or for worse, like that means I don't have to deal with a lot of the the, the crap, but I do sometimes miss uh, pieces or pitches that would be really interesting. And so uh, the first email that I received from Teresa's publicist, this was back in like, I think September, um, I think I, I missed it. And she followed up, uh, you know, one of those classic like circling back and somehow it, it made its way into my priority inbox. And I was like, huh, this is interesting. I'd be interested in this. And, and I had profiled Sherman Alexi the year before and Sherman, um, was one of Teresa's mentors. And so I was like, and, and he had told me actually about her and I had it in my notes, like the things that he had said about her writing and, and how amazing she was. So I like look back and I was like, okay, all right, I'll think about this. And, and just, just to, for people who don't know, can you tell us who Sherman Alexi is? Yeah, yeah. Sherman Alexi is arguably the most prominent indigenous writer in the United States right now. Um, he has won many awards. But like He has won a National Book Award for his book, um, The Absolutely True Diary of a Part-Time Indian, which now has become part of the curriculum for, it's a YA novel, and now has become part of the curriculum for many different uh, junior highs, high schools across the nation. So there's a whole generation of people who have grown up with Sherman Alexie's writing. And he also was one of the founding faculty members of this MFA program at the Institute of American Indian Arts in Santa Fe. And for those who haven't been fortunate enough to read it yet, what's kind of the 30-second pitch? The 30-second pitch is that this is an MFA program that is you know, founded by Indigenous writers, centered on Indigenous writers. It's not exclusively taught by Indigenous writers, but that is the, the core. Is like the way that white MFA programs, aka most MFA programs, where whiteness is just the norm, Indigenousness is just the norm there. And so there's different standards of, you know, what makes writing good? What makes writing effective? What does success look like? Like, it's not just selling your book and getting a New York Times review. It's also communicating truths in a way that, like, your tribe wants to read them or being successful in terms of, like, communicating your specific and your communal trauma. Um, So there's just, it's a very, the paradigm is different in a really exciting and provocative way. So I'm a subscriber to your tiny letter, and in it, you expanded a lot on the story behind the story, um, including your internal struggle with the fact that you're a white woman telling the story. Can you expand on that a little bit? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that one thing that is easy for white people to forget is that the story of indigenous people has been largely filtered through the voices of, of white authors white you know journalists for centuries and turned into narratives like Pocahontas or you know even just the Thanksgiving story so 
any white person who comes to try to report on or tell the story of what's happening in an indigenous community is already part of that that lineage and it doesn't matter if i myself you know was not part of the forced removal of indigenous communities from their land like i am part of that legacy and for me not to recognize that would be would be folly um but i also know that you know as a staff writer on a mainstream uh, national publication, you know, this story might not get told if I didn't advocate for it. And, you know, as I said earlier, my goal is to, you know, never write another one of these stories. Like each one that I write, I'm hoping that that means, okay, can we hire an indigenous writer now? You know, not only at BuzzFeed, at other publications, at national publications, at local publications. and that's not to say, you know, one of the things I, I talk about in the tiny letter is like, I don't think that if you hire an indigenous writer, they should only have to write about indigenous issues. You know, that's exhausting. Um, if they want to, sure. But like, I think one of the, the liberties that I enjoy as a culture writer, which is such a broad designation, is that one day I can be writing about, you know, like Clive and Bundy, who is this um, you know, lands right advocate on the far, far right, his visit to Montana and, and that movement. And the next day I can write about, you know, these authors in Santa Fe. And the next day I can write about, I don't know, I have a piece coming out about Taylor Kitsch, who's a star from Friday Night Lights, like his Instagram. Um, you know, like <laughs> culture writers' interests uh, are so vast and being able to to put them all under an umbrella and and not just have to report on the thing that mirrors your identity. So I love reporting about the West and I also love reporting about like whiteness and how whiteness tries to erase itself and the dominance of whiteness, all these things. But I don't only want to write about that. And I think all culture writers should have that privilege. And so what advice would you give to journalists covering communities that they might not necessarily belong to? My advice is actually borrowed from and articulated in my piece about uh, Tommy and Therese, and it's spoken by this white uh, novelist who's on staff at IAI. She's also a creative writing professor at um, UC Davis. Her name's Pam Houston. And, you know, her, her general posture is just to shut up as much as she can, um, just to listen. And I think that that, you know, sometimes as reporters, depends on what kind of reporter you are, but like, that's hard. Because we go into situations and you want to ask questions and you want to guide, you know, some of the reporting to things that you think are interesting. But what I really tried to do and in, in my attitude going in, you know, not only to reporting about these indigenous writers, but like anytime I'm reporting on people who uh, have a culture that is different than me, whether it's, you know, Trump voters, whether it's um, like even like people from the far, far right that I report about here in Northern Idaho and in Northwest Montana is to be like, okay, so I'm just going to listen. I'm going to try to hear where you're, what, what's important to you and how you'd like to guide the conversation instead of trying to guide it myself. And historically, as you kind of already hinted at, it's been white Americans, journalists who tell stories of their indigenous counterparts. They've largely been made invisible in shaping their own narrative. Do you think that's changing now at all? I do. I think that the internet has really changed that. Like, I think before 
there have always been indigenous-run publications, um, newspapers, radio stations that are still you know, in existence today. But in addition to websites that are run by indigenous people and, and primarily directed at indigenous people, there are um, you know, tons of voices on Twitter that like, you know, direct you to different writing, direct you to different ways of thinking. It doesn't have to necessarily be you know, a piece written by a journalist, but it can be a thread that's like, here's why you know, the movement on the part of the Cleveland Indians to get rid of the mascot, but still not get rid of like the Cleveland Indians. Like, here's why that's still hurtful. And it's just, it's, a, it's an explainer, it's an authority. It's, it's instead of hearing white voices explain why it's offensive, it's actually, you know, hearing from people who, who embody that identity and who have been injured by it for a very long time. Um, and then I just want to clarify something that I said earlier, which is that you know, the, the posture of listening. I think that there's a difference between when you're vote, listening to people whose ideologies are necessarily different from you. So like white supremacists, like it's not always the right posture just to listen. Like sometimes I think the best reporting is when you call them on their bullshit um, or press them on things that are just, you know, offensively wrong and bigoted. Um, and that's different than when you're talking to indigenous people being, you know, just being quiet and trying to, to, to take that posture of listening. I also want to talk about indigenous voices within our own industry. Um, so we've, we've gotten a lot better at talking about diversity in terms of our own newsrooms and also our coverage. But from my experience, those conversations about diversity haven't really extended to include native voices. Why do you think that is? And also, how can we better support native voices in journalism? So I think part of it is just where the national newsrooms are largely located, which is coastal. And there are absolutely indigenous people in urban areas, but they are less um, consolidated than in the reservations where the majority of Native Americans live. And so, you know, like when I was on the East Coast, like most of the people that I worked with had never met a Native person had, you know, maybe never even read work by a Native person. Things that I consider just like canon, um, like there's this book uh, by Leslie Marmon Silco called Ceremony, which like I read in high school and then I read like twice, in, once in college and then again in grad school, like was on the curriculum. You know, I went to Western schools though and those things are absent. You know, my editors will be like, oh, when you say this is canonical, like I've never heard of it. Um, and that's just both in terms of that that's a a blind spot both in terms of just like thinking about native people you know if they're if people aren't visible in your life, it's oftentimes hard to consider them as part of American life. Does that make sense um, and and then there's also you know all different types of diversity to consider and it's hard like I get it it is hard to think okay, I'm making a newsroom. I have, let's say I have room for four culture writers. How do I include someone, you know, who is embodying all of these different perspectives that we want that include, you know, people who are, you know, not cisgendered, who people who are from different countries, people who identify with different sexualities. You know what I mean? Like there's so many different identities that you want to include. And I think that unfortunately, um, indigenous people get lost in that mix. Uh, it, I will say though that a lot of you know the the publications 
that are more based in, you know, outside of the the coastal elites, which I'm putting in quotes and don't take seriously as a designation. Um, those are the places that, that have been taking these issues seriously. And a place that I mentioned in my tiny letter that's doing a really good and, you know, intentional job of this is High Country News, um, which is an amazing publication that has an entire tribal affairs desk. Okay, on to the news of the week. I'm joined by two of my favorite colleagues, senior staff writer Alex Neeson. Hey, Alex. Hey. And CJR Delacorte fellow John Alsop. John, thanks for being here. Thank you. So we're sitting here recording on Wednesday afternoon, two weeks after 17 students and faculty members were killed at Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland, Florida. And this is still a story that is dominating the top of newspaper homepages, cable news broadcasts. It's really held on in a way that past mass shooting events, even the news cycle around the 2012 shooting in Sandy Hook, didn't last this long. And both of you have written pieces about how that story has carried on. So, Alex, you wrote the first one that we did. What was the focus you and Meg took to this story? So we really looked at how student journalists at uh, Douglas have been covering uh, their own tragedy, really. So we talked to a couple of writers on the Stools newspaper, the Eagle Eye, um, and also their newspaper advisor and the teacher who runs the broadcast TV program. They've got a TV news, a weekly TV news show. We've seen this happen in other public tragedies like this, where people immediately turn to social media um, for information about what's happening. The first professional reporter was tipped off about this school shooting on Twitter, I believe, because a student had posted something. Um, and so the students that we talked to while they were barricaded in class, uh, classroom closets and, and waiting for law enforcement to show up, um, they all pulled out cell phones and started thinking about how they were going to write their own story. And they took videos, they took photos, um, and continued to do so as they were evacuated. Yeah, I think any conversation about why this has lasted has to start with those students, whether it's been their own reporting or their appearances on national broadcasts or the activism that they've organized. Yeah, so it's sort of twofold because we really looked at how the school's uh, journalism program was covering the school shooting and then the aftermath. Um, but it also sort of intersects with the activism that we saw begin immediately after the shooting. Several of the students who have been sort of running, uh, making uh, rounds on all of the cable news stations and have gotten a lot of press um, in this fight uh, for gun control, for gun reforms. Um, Several of those students are went through the journalism program, and so we talked with the director of that program about how them just learning how to be on camera has really helped them feel comfortable enough to, even in this moment of like immense grief and, and trauma, to be able to step in front of a camera uh, with a national audience and, and do really well. And then there's this sort of uh, the conversation that we've been having in the professional journalism world also about when it's appropriate for activism and straight reporting to kind of uh, intersect. Um, And that's something that I think the high schoolers, high school reporters are kind of still figuring out. But they definitely see their reporting and journalism as at the very least a way Uh, for them to participate in this activism, even if it doesn't mean that they're sort of taking a clear stance one way or the other. One thing I've noticed is that we often get in the aftermath of an event like this, uh, 
a call from at least some quarters not to politicize a tragedy. And it's almost like the students have kind of obliterated that norm on their own by saying, well, we were the, the victims here and we are politicizing it. Um, and that has driven the tone of the coverage. It's, it's almost as if the shooter, who is often the focus of these type of stories, has receded from the coverage. Yeah, I mean, we haven't seen, I mean, there have been stories, particularly in uh, local papers in Florida, about the shooter, about uh, the family that had taken him in in this sort of attempt to understand why he did what he did. But I think definitely much more than we've seen with other mass shootings like this, uh, it's just not that much a part of the conversation. Um, and the kids have been successful in that light. Um, I think the kids that we spoke with would like for that to continue and they want the focus to be on sort of what happened to them and what they're doing. Yeah. And then, John, you had uh, what I thought was a really original take on this this week, talking about how one of the reasons that both the, the Parkland shooting and uh, you can get into it, but also the Me Too movement have stuck around is that while they're not about Donald Trump, per se, they have this adjacency to Trump stories that has helped make them into bigger national topics of conversation. Yeah, I think, um, you know, you and Alex are completely right that the students of Parkland are really the kind of key driver of this. They are what is keeping this at the top of the news cycle. But I did get thinking over the weekend, it was interesting to me that the, the Weinstein thing and now the Parkland thing, albeit you know, we don't know exactly how long the Parkland thing will last. But it feels similar to the Me Too story in the sense that it had that original burst of momentum and then did outlast very clearly the kind of initial week-long 10-day news cycle. And it was interesting to me that those two stories had survived in a news cycle which we were being told all of last year couldn't handle stories that weren't about Trump. And it sort of occurred to me that I think these stories kind of are about Trump, but they're also not about Trump. And I think that means that they hit a sweet spot for news organizations. We've heard a lot about Trump fatigue, voters kind of getting fed up of reading about Trump. And while I think there is some truth in that in some quarters, clearly Trump continues to be a big draw. I think what readers have got fatigued by principally is reading the same stories about Trump over and over again, reading stories about every single tweet, every single outburst. It was this kind of feeling of being jerked around by his um, deliberately disruptive behavior. And what's different, I think, about the Weinstein and the Parkland stories are that Trump is very clearly a character here. Weinstein evokes his personal behavior in, a, you know, in an uncomfortable way. Parkland, clearly, he has inserted himself in the, in the response to it. But these are stories that allow news organizations to kind of wrap Trump's disruptive behavior around a frame that is external to Trump. It's almost a mooring for them. So it's that idea that, of course, the president is going to be a part of these national conversations, just like Obama was after the Sandy Hook shooting. But because of our focus on Trump to begin with, and because he can't seem to help making himself a part of the story, that this allows journalists to tackle political questions specifically about the president in a new and, and perhaps like deeper way? Yeah, I think it also gives the media a chance to move on from the original repetitive Trump cycle, which if you listen to a lot of reporters and editors is something they've been trying to do for a long time. I do think there's another factor here which makes these stories uh, sort of Trump adjacent, and that is that these are both stories about activism, very mm -hmm. clearly. The Me Too story is about people rising up to demand an end to an historic injustice. This story is very clearly becoming that as well. And I think that while the movements that we're talking about here are not against Trump in the same way that the Women's March, for instance, was very obviously against Trump as well as other things. In the first order of magnitude, these are movements about other things. But that being said, Trump has created a zeitgeist where this kind of angry uh, reaction to stuff that has been going on for a long time 
you know, he's created a zeitgeist where those kind of stories really do have legs. And I think these stories thrive very clearly in that context. So as we sit here two weeks after the initial event, um, I, you know, making that connection to me too, I remember being in the studio after the Weinstein story broke and saying, okay, well, this is, this is good. It's good that this reporting's out there. It's incredible reporting by the New York Times and New Yorker. But the fear was that it was going to be a flash in the pan that really wouldn't change anything structurally. So I'll ask that again about the gun control, the never again movement. Do you think that we will still be talking about this, uh, at least at some level, in a few weeks, a few months? You know, I think it certainly helps that the folks who are delivering this message about a need for a change in our gun laws or some sort of political solution um, are kids, and they're really smart and really articulate kids. But I do wonder about what's going to happen just over the next month. You know, they've gone back to school today was the first day that students at the high school went back. And I, I wonder about how how our attention as journalists is how, how they'll keep our attention as journalists. We've got this major walkout that's going to be happening in a couple of weeks um, that they'll participate in and that high schoolers across the country will participate in. But what happens after that? A lot of these kids are seniors and, uh, you know, life, their lives are going to continue to happen. And I just wonder whether um, reporters are going to be interested in uh, the stuff that they are going to be doing. That's not so what that's not so uh, what am I trying to say? That's not so public, like these major massive walkouts that are happening across the country and a march that's happening in D.C. Um, I wonder whether we'll still be interested in sort of the smaller, quieter uh, pieces of activism that I feel like they're going to inevitably fall into. I'm a little pessimistic, too, but I do wonder if we'll look back at these two stories as the kind of beginning of a much longer thing. This Weinstein news cycle feels long, but it may very well not be over yet. And the same may be true um, of the Parkland kids. I mean, I think, uh, you know, Alex, you certainly have a point about whether they'll hold our attention. Um, But I think some of these kids seem incredibly serious about going the distance on this. I would not be surprised if we see a couple of these kids run for office in the not too distant future on kind of single issue awareness raising campaigns. Clearly, that's speculative. But it's the sort of thing that their level of performance and and level kind of uh, level of articulate advocacy around this issue so far lends you to think is a possibility. And so while I'm pessimistic that the structural conditions at the moment are ripe for change in either of these areas, um, I don't think that we've seen the end of either of these stories by a long chalk. And I think that all we can really do in the media is continue to cover it as long as that coverage is important and merited. For now, it clearly is. All right, let's leave it there. Turning away from the coverage that we've been seeing to an issue in the business of news category, the New York Times is reportedly tooling up to launch a television program. Uh, This news comes from a CNN report by Brian Stelter, who kind of discovered this job posting hanging out there uh, for an executive producer for an upcoming television series that the Times is interested in, in expanding into that field. And this comes, of course, on the heels of the success of their podcast, The Daily. So... It's raising these questions for me about what is a newspaper anymore? Um, What is a print media institution as we sit here uh, at a 60-year-old publication talking in a podcast studio? But I'm interested in what this means, not just for the Times, but also for the industry and especially for some of these legacy institutions. Well, I think... um We've heard a lot about the pivot to video, right? I would see this more as a pivot to everything. I mean, clearly, legacy media organizations and and other kind of 
text-based digital news organizations are, you know, not just going to video, but are going to different formats that are ripe for television or or documentary format or a morning Twitter show um, or a a sort of podcast based on on various different models. Um, And I think clearly what this is, is an attempt at diversification, right? I mean, I think it's interesting that the Times, for example, is actually doing very well with its subscription model right now, but clearly isn't satisfied with that. Clearly, they have realized this might be a Trump bump. We don't know how long we can sustain this. So we need to make sure that we have other products. We sort of uh, reach out with tentacles into other parts of the media universe to drive people to our brand. That's what they've done incredibly successfully with the, the daily podcast. Will this TV venture work? I mean, who knows? It seems like it, the details are fuzzy. It might be kind of a halfway house between a documentary format and a kind of news show. Yeah, we should mention that according to Stelter's report, they're in talks right now with streaming services and premium cable channels about the idea of a weekly, possibly 30-minute uh, television show. Yeah, so I mean, but whatever whatever form it takes, I think it's notable that these companies that are having success with a subscription model now are trying to expand their, their wheelhouse as much as they can, kind of double down on their current popularity and, and really kind of reach out. And I think that's a, an innovative and, and good thing. I also wonder how much of this is... Uh, kind of a more careful uh, monitoring of what's working elsewhere with the pivot to video thing. It just sort of all happened where everyone suddenly, for whatever reason, decided that video was the wave. And when we saw that it clearly wasn't, so many of those ventures failed. I wonder whether this is kind of particularly legacy print publications, kind of more carefully looking at what's actually doing well and then looking for ways to kind of step into those spaces. Yeah, and then one difference, of course, from the pivot to video is that in this case, they own the content. They're not creating video for social media, uh, for Facebook specifically. This would be a project in which HBO or Netflix or whomever pays the Times for the rights to broadcast this, and it's something that they control at the Times, and their partner controls the distribution of and reaps the benefit of without you know, a Facebook taking uh, a large chunk of the profit. Yeah, on the subject of Facebook, though, um, I do think that we should be kind of mindful that the, the flip side of this is that we're maybe sort of getting into a place now, and this has been a part of the conversation this week with people like uh, Craig Silverman on Twitter, for example, where a few kind of well-situated, trusted media brands are going to kind of rocket into the stratosphere with good subscription models and products like cable you know, ready TV shows and podcasts. It's an awful lot of media companies that are going to be left behind that don't have workable revenue models right now, clearly therefore don't have the revenue to reinvest in these innovative new projects. I think there's still like a huge degree of concern uh, that we're increasingly getting to a point where we're going to see a kind of uh, real two-tier stratification where there's a kind of few very viable business models at the top that have lots of fancy bells and whistles and a good subscription model and then loads of people lagging behind where those audience expanding options just aren't feasible because they haven't cracked the fundamentals of of making a good amount of money on a daily basis. Yeah, I mean, in some sense, the New York Times is like a unicorn along with a, a few other really prestige publications. But what works for the New York Times is not necessarily going to work for the Philadelphia Inquirer or you know, the Cleveland Plain Dealer, the Sacramento Bee, or some of those regional places um, that also need to figure out how to make the current financial situation work. Yeah, I also wonder about how it sort of crowds the market when a big publication like the Times creates like a really successful, really great daily podcast like they have or TV show or whatever it is. And then other folks, even if they can scrounge together the resources to make something really good, if everyone watch, listens to the daily or everyone watches the Times show, then there's no real reason for people to to look for those smaller 
uh, outlets that might also be producing a product that is comparable in terms of uh, quality. And it looks like there's a degree of jostle here also. I can't really see any cause and effect here that's provable, but you know, the Times does the daily and then Vox says we're going to kind of do a daily style end of day podcast. And then suddenly you hear that the daily is going into public radio syndication and they'll do an end of day product as well. I mean, clearly, I have no idea whether I mean that may well have been in the works before the Vox announcement. But there is a kind of sense that there is some kind of competition here. But it's these big players who are breaking away and then going back at each other. And you get locked into that logic of competition. It can be even harder for those smaller places to force their way in. Yeah, it's like the space race. Yeah, <laughs> I was going to go with the arms race, but uh, I'll take your more altruistic approach. Um, either way, I think the Times has earned the benefit of the doubt based on the success of the Daily. This is not any sort of imminent project that we're going to be seeing the result yeah. of, but certainly something uh, worth watching. That was our show. Thanks for kicking it with us. I want to thank Anne Helen Peterson for talking with Meg earlier and thank my colleagues Alex and John for being here with me in studio. You can check out their stories as well as all the great content we've got up at cjr.org, and we'll see you next week.